We met here for the purpose of worship, and certainly worship consists of a lot of things, excuse me, not the least of which is prayer. So we're going to proceed uh, as usual this morning uh, with this silent prayer. Please remember our country and uh, our president and all of the leaders, all of our authorities, and uh, of course remember our service today, so... Let's have a moment of silent prayer while Tommy plays for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, uh, by way of announcements, we are going to have our <clears throat> prayer meetings 6.30 on Wednesday, followed by our Bible study in the book of John uh, at 7 o'clock. <clears throat> We're in the 14th chapter of the book of John, so uh, feel free to join us if you so choose. All right, so 6.30... Prayer meeting, 7 o'clock, Bible study. Uh, Now let's go to another aspect of worship called giving. I've turned on the chart that you have seen over and over again here, but uh, many out there have not since we now have a podcast. And I'm going to uh, announce that on the podcast, you you, uh, can't see the charts and it therefore is not as valuable as going to the internet and looking at westbankbiblechurch.com. So I just let you know that because we are putting both services on the internet as well as the podcast. All right, uh, with reference to giving, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> certainly uh, <coughs> we have a little different outlook on giving at this church, we look at it as an aspect of worship. In other words, we uh, have prayer and we have a Bible study and we have some music and then we also have, of course, uh, giving. And uh, it has two ways to look at giving. First of all, you can go to... 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9 and get a really uh, outstanding uh, set of scriptures on New Testament giving. So it's different. Certainly different than tithing and it's different from various gimmicks that are used in the local church today. Uh, But uh, I'm going to Quote here, Second Corinthians eight twelve. For if the willingness is there, it is acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he doesn't have. And I think that certainly gives indication that when we have a moment of silent prayer, which we will, you can think about giving. And if you want to give, you gave. Uh, that's uh, that's a fact. According to again, Second Corinthians eight twelve, as I interpret it. 
Now, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 has something else to say about giving. It's for those who have been blessed and have something to give and they want to give it. Well, <clears throat> the want to is the important thing. If God has blessed you and you have something to give, but you can't give it without, uh, uh, well, grudgingly, as the Scripture says. And I'll quote you, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Every man according to his purpose in his heart, so let him give, uh, but not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So you need to be able to be a cheerful giver uh, before you do give. Now, here in the church, we have the plates, two in the front, one in the back. And our folks know at the end of the service to go find the plate if they want to give. And they can do it without, of course, any grudging nature, but they do it freely. And if you're out there and you want to give something, you certainly can mail a check to us. at uh, Or cash, even, says my treasurer. Uh <coughs> And uh, it's 4010 B Cave Road, uh, Austin, Texas, 78746. So, so much then for giving. Now let's have that moment of silent prayer that I promise. And uh, you think about giving and you can exercise your, well, whatever the protocol indicates you should do. And uh, it's up to you. So let us pray. Father, we are grateful that we can come together and worship in this great country of ours. So I would ask that you would bless both the gift and the giver, and that you would continue to bless us. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to have a song now, and Kenneth's going to punch the button. It's on a CD, and it's uh, Emily, my granddaughter, and uh, uh, Ethan, who are going to sing a duet, which we recorded some years ago. Open my eyes and my heart. Let's see what's next. We'll listen to that one.
All right. We're going to do the other one next week. The Lord willing. <laughs> and the creek don't rise. So uh, we'll uh, give it another try. We're still, you know, under quarantine. We've been asked not to have congregational singing. And I certainly look forward to the day when we can uh, uh, all join in together and, and sing God's praises. Alright, last week I completed our study of 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. And then we began analysis of 2 Timothy 4, 3, 4 and 5. But before we <clears throat> continue that study, let's use 1 John 1, 9 as may or may not be necessary. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to study your word. And I guide and direct us as we do recognize that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, in order that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, here we go now with the KJV of 2 Timothy 4, 3, 4, and 5. We're going to review until we get to page 4. But uh, KJV, 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministries. <clears throat> so we have then, uh, of course, Paul writing from prison, writing to Timothy, who is in Ephesus, and he's giving him instruction with reference to what he is to do. Now, the best way, I think, to study these verses, again, as I noted last week, was to review the doctrine of false communicators. And uh, we started with uh, infamous New Testament false teachers. All right, the Apostle Paul speaks of three, actually, Hymenaeus, Philetus, and Alexander. These are men, as he says, who have done more or most serious injury to the church, that is the local church, the universal church. Uh, we don't know the extent of the damage, but uh, we know it was damage. All right, the specific error of Hymenaeus and Philetus was their denial that there would be any bodily resurrection. In other words, they said, no, no, there's not going to be a resurrection, no bodily resurrection. Now, they treated, it seems... Uh, all scripture references to such a state as either figurative or uh, metaphorical. So the Christian, knowing that Christ was raised from the dead, certainly looked for it, as do we, uh, to the day when our bodies would be raised. And it is by this faith uh, that, uh, of course, the denial came forth. Uh, from Hymenaeus and Philetus, and we'll have more about them later on. Look at the scriptures where they're actually mentioned. But Paul tells us this false teaching had indeed overthrown the faith of some. It would also overthrow Christian faith altogether if, in fact, uh, what they alleged were true. For if the dead are not raised, neither is Christ risen from the dead, and Ye are all yet in your sins, says the scripture. So we should not consider their error as fatal as far as their salvation is concerned. I'm afraid that's the first, that's the first, in, <coughs> excuse me, that's, <coughs> that's what many people believe that, well, now they're longer saved. Well, I can't say that, and you can't say that. It just shows that they've gone astray. 
as far as Bible doctrine is concerned. They're not listening to their authority. They're not accepting what God's man has taught them. And that is, of course, about the resurrection. So uh, uh, we need to understand that. And I just want to dispel that before we go any further, that one should not take that to mean that these men are no longer believers. There are a lot of people who believe a lot of things that's not true after they are saved, but it doesn't affect their salvation. It just affects what God is going to do to them or for them to get them to uh, get back on the straight and narrow, get under their authority and listen. All right, so the denial of the resurrection of the body, whether of mankind generally or of Christ, is the overthrow of the faith. Uh, and it is an end-time malady. It leaves nothing to cling to, no living Christ who saves and leads and again uh, comforts his people. All right, the apostle proceeds to say that the teaching of this kind eats as doth a gangrene or cancer, and that it increases unto more ungodliness. As a canker or gangrene eats away the flesh, so does such teaching eat away at the Christian faith. Paul is careful to say, uh, and he does that more than once, that the teaching which denies there will be a resurrection of the dead leads inevitably to either ungodliness uh, or uh, iniquity, in other words, sin or evil. Paul is careful to say more than once that the teaching which denies that there will be a resurrection of the dead leads inevitably to, again, ungodliness, and certainly to iniquity. Now, what about the resurrection? What was it that Hymenaeus and Philetus did not believe? And so, I have in, <clears throat> in our doctrine of the resurrection, of which I'm going to quote a bit from it, though I have not uh, provided it for you in the lesson plan, uh, I bet you'll remember when we went over the resurrection. So, uh, you might ask the question, what was it that led them astray? In other words, was it? In other words, who Jesus was? When it happened? Where it happened? How it happened? Why it happened? Or uh, the result? Was the result effective or was the result not effective? So, it's kind of like a who, when, where, how, why, or our uh, end result. And all that is in our doctrine of the resurrection, and the doctrine of the resurrection is on the internet under Pastor Merritt's study books. But just a real quick review about the, the who. Were they concerned about who was resurrected? In other words, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Jewish Messiah, did they not believe that? Well, we certainly think they did, but we don't have any way of saying whether they did or didn't. Nor was it really any of our business. We just know that they indeed, according to Paul, had been teaching in error uh, about the resurrection, that there was a, not a resurrection. All right, with reference to the who business, let's go ahead and look at John four twenty-five and 26, and I'm going to read it for you. The woman saith unto him, that's a Syrophoenician woman, I know that the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will teach us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. So again, an assertion that he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. And also in John 9, 35, 36, 37, and 38, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. That's the formerly blind man. They had kicked him out of the synagogue. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So we have evidence there that Jesus himself was indeed the Son of God, said he was the Son of God, said he was the Messiah, and certainly uh, that should not have given Hymenaeus and Philetus a problem. So the who, 
That was Jesus Christ. Plenty of evidence he was the Son of God as he did indeed say. Alright, how about the wind? I don't know why they'd have a problem with the wind because W-H-E-N because uh, it was on Sunday, our time, and it was on Saturday, the Jewish time, the last day of the Passion Week. Now with reference to where? Well, it was in the city of Jerusalem, and the city of Jerusalem did have problems from time to time, and it was on a hill called Golgotha. Uh, so that shouldn't have given them any problem. They could look and see the hill. They knew where Jerusalem was. and They had many people who remembered and recalled how they led Christ up Golgotha. And then the how. How did it happen? Well, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit did it. And they did it by their sovereign power. Uh, Notice Colossians 2.12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And then certainly verse 10, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. So that should have given them no problem. Certainly not after walking and talking with Him and watching Him miracle after miracle. And then was it the why that God did this? for mankind that might have bothered him. Well, because of the depravity of man, there was no other way. In other words, Christ had to die. He had to go to the cross. He had to be resurrected. Even the Old Testament writer, Isaiah, and the other very famous Old Testament writer, Jeremiah, had something to say about it. Isaiah said in verse 6 of chapter 53, "...all we like sheep have gone astray." We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And then Jeremiah said in chapter 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And of course, the Lord is the only one who can know it. And certainly Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23, verses that we from time to time quote, Again, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Romans 5.12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Or Galatians 3.22, But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Alright, so certainly you have plenty of scriptures there as we're going to see even more. What was the result of what was done at the resurrection? A heavenly home for all believers was provided and that is an eternal home. John three sixteen seventeen and 18 For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent His Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. And then certainly John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. And of course we all await that day that's set forth in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself shall descend from the heavens with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet them in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then John 11.25, 26, and 27. 
Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? And she said unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. So Timothy was told to do the work of an evangelist. And of course, by way of secondary application, we as pastor teachers are told to do the work of an evangelist. And I have just done the work of an evangelist. I have provided numerous scriptures whereby man can be saved by faith alone in Christ alone. All right, now let's review the scriptures which mention these three heretics. All right, first of all, 2 Timothy 2.17, their teaching shall spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Verse 18, who have wandered away from the truth, they say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Our first Timothy, chapter 1, verses 18, 19, and 20, where they are also mentioned. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you might fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now what about Alexander? Well, we have very little information about why he did not to help Paul, but I can certainly surmise that it could quite possibly be fear. Because here's Paul, he's getting, of course, beat about the head and shoulders, being tried for something that he didn't do, and uh, Alexander didn't come to his aid. And uh, so we just have to conjecture why he did not. We have little information about what his uh, heresy was, whereas I have just indicated we had certainly information about Hymenaeus and Philetus. All right, but let me read you. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. And we assume this is the Alexander that is referred to in our study. But Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. He might very well have been the Alexander that we're all familiar with, who in Ephesus uh, went out and spoke to the crowd unruly bunch, much like we see in our streets today, uh, most unruly. Uh, and it could very well have been him. But again, the, Alexander was a very common name, so we're not real sure if that is the same one. But whomever, Paul, of course, says he left him in Satan's hand to take care of him. All right, now let's look at Second Timothy 4. 16, 17, and 18. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through the message might be fully proclaimed that through the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. The Lord will... And I was delivered... From the lion's mouth. He was delivered from the lion's mouth, and we don't know exactly what that means, given the fact that he never did get out of prison, and in fact was executed. So the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That certainly gives us indication he's talking about, uh, though he might be beheaded, as indeed history tells us he was. Uh, he knows where he's going to be the next day. He's going to be face-to-face with God, face-to-face with the Lord Jesus, and in a place of absolute happiness. All right, now let's go to the doctrine of false communicators. The Scriptures are replete with teachings about false communicators. False communicators are called several things. False prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing, Satan's ministers, wells without water, 
hireling prophets, profane and vain babblers. All right, let's look at false prophets first. So keep in mind as we go to the various scriptures for the phrase, if you will, the two words, false prophets. All right, Jeremiah 14.14. He wrote in approximately 600 or so B.C. He was, of course, uh, a preacher, if you will, a prophet, a proclaimer who proclaimed that the Babylonians are coming and you ought to open the gates and let them in because this is what God told me to do. So he, in turn, did his job and he repeated what God had told him to do. But there were those who said, oh, no, 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 you're wrong. We're not to do that. We can take care of the Babylonians when they come. We have an army. And in fact, we can also rely upon Egypt to help us. All of which proved futile, both their army and help from Egypt. So let me read you Jeremiah fourteen fourteen. Then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not. Neither have I commanded them. Neither spake unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination. And a thing of naught. And the deceit of their heart. So we find then there were those who, of course, uh, went to the rulers and said, you know, here's what really is the true deal. And when they use that word divination, they talking about maybe some divine, quote, close quote, miracles that they would perform to substantiate that they had the true message. But uh, Jeremiah held his ground. In fact, uh, he was put in, quote, prison. That would be a deep hole full of water. And uh, he had to be rescued on more than one occasion. All right, then in Matthew, going to the gospel, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are rapacious wolves. Or Matthew twenty four eleven, And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. Matthew twenty four twenty four, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. And then Mark, in chapter 13, verse 22, For false Christs and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. All right, Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Woe unto you, and all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. And then Peter in Second Peter chapter 2 verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And then in First John chapter 4 verse 1. Believe not every spirit, beloved, but try the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So we are warned about false prophets by virtue of the several scriptures that I have just provided for you. So uh, always be aware you have God the Holy Spirit resident in you that can teach you about false prophets. But God also has an organization chart and uh, various pastor teachers who are provided to teach you. And of course, your job is to evaluate them, meditate upon what they say, and uh, let God the Holy Spirit make clear the truth. All right, now let's go to another uh, nomenclature here. False teachers are called Wolves in sheep's clothing. Matthew chapter 10 verse 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves.
And then Luke chapter 10, verse 3. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. And Acts 20, 29. For I know this, that after my departing from Ephesus shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. So we also have these wolves in sheep's clothing who are were around at the, during the time of the of our Lord's mission here on planet Earth. But in addition, they are always there's always false teachers, false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing, hiring hireling prophets, etc. That we must be uh, we must be careful with reference to what we believe uh, and uh, act accordingly. All right, let's see what we have then in the way of Satan's ministers. Second Corinthians eleven four. Interesting, interesting passage as we move forward in the age of the church. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. All right, now let's take a look at Second Corinthians eleven thirteen. For such men are, again, false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no marvel, very interesting passage, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. And they're also called wells without water. Always a promise. Uh, it's going to rain. Look at those clouds, you know, as opposed to providing the water itself, the water of the word. All right, Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, reading through verse 22. Wells without water. These are wells without water. Clouds that are carried with a tempest to whom the midst of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... They are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Again, referring to discipline. Though they remain a believer, they are subject to significant discipline. Now, verse 21 and 22. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than they have known it, to turn the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them According to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. A reference, of course, to returning to reversionism and uh, not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ's word. Remember, there are two different words, if you will, in Scripture. You have the the, uh, living word, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you have the written word, which is his mind, the word of God. And then we also have the phrase hirelings, or the word hirelings in this case. John 10, 12, and 13. But he that is an hireling, in other words, in it for the money, and not the shepherd, that is the one who loves the sheep, whose own the shepherd or not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is an hireling. And careth not for the sheep. Alright, then we have profane and vain babblers. 1 Timothy 6.20 and 2 Timothy 2.16. 
which we have, of course, is one of our verses. Let's do 1 Timothy 6.20. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called. And then verse 16 of 2 Timothy, of course, but shun, shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. All right, now let's look at a few, if you will, Old Testament examples. Satan himself was one of those. Satan convinced one-third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion and terrible act of pride, the first thing God hates. Notice Isaiah fourteen twelve and 13. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations, one of the four divine institutions, a product of nationalism, nations. Right, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Certainly, as we have studied this particular series of verses, we know that this was Satan who decided, I'm going to go to planet Earth. I'm going to go to the dark side of Mount Moriah. Uh, the same terminology, sides of the north, can be found, I think, in the 48th Psalm, as I recall. So he decided to go, and this would be his, you might say, his playing field, where he would, of course, uh, attempt to uh, exercise various prerogatives on planet Earth. In other words, he is today alive and well. And I gave you a couple of books that you could read last week. One by Hal Lindsey that gives you plenty of evidence that Satan is around and alive and well and functioning. Alright, now Revelation 12.4 And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to deliver her child as soon as it was born. That's a verse that has dual application, which is not unusual. First, he's talking about, of course, Mary, who was going to give birth to her, to her, her child, the Lord Jesus. But it also has a reference to the fact that in the middle of the tribulation, there shall be a great deal of work by the dragon, old Satan himself. And, uh, they will be taken care of in the middle of the tribulation when the abomination of the desolation occurs. And we studied that last Wednesday night. Uh, how Daniel spoke of it because, of course, uh, later, or earlier, Matthew hits, uh, earlier, excuse me, later, I'll get it right in a minute, uh, Matthew would be quoting the abomination of the desolation. And when that takes place in the middle of the tribulation, they are to flee. We don't know exactly where they are to flee, but they are to flee uh, to the uh, south, if you will, where they will be protected. How they're protected, we do not know. But they will be protected in the middle of the tribulation if they follow instructions. And as I said last Wednesday night, they're very foolish to even be in the Holy Land in the middle of the tribulation. You say, well, how will they know they're in the middle of the tribulation? Study the Scripture. In other words, go to... <laughs> Pastor Mary's study books and study the, the tribulation period where it's very clearly set forth. And it was also clearly set forth in Jenkins and LaHaye's book, you know, uh, which we also mentioned this past week. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. But you can get the lesson, if you will, on the internet, or you can go and study the book of Revelation in its entirety, uh, which is under Pastor Mary's study books. All right, uh, Satan was a deft, false communicator when he possessed the snake, a creature originally created as a thing of beauty, but later cursed to its present state because of his seduction of Eve. Notice Genesis 3, 1, reading through verse 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to, serpent, to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. 
But did God say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden? But you must not touch it or you will die. Now, of course, that's the woman speaking. Uh, and it can, he never said that. God did not say that if you touch it, you're going to die. So she wasn't listening in Bible class, apparently. But the point was, in Bible class took place in the cool of the evening when God walked with Adam and Eve. So God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So they both were guilty and they had to do something in order to regain their status as as, uh, not guilty, which was, of course, to put on the animal skins that were provided by God, as you'll recall. When uh, God went and killed an animal for the very first time, and I'm sure this was very upsetting because they had never seen an animal killed before. Remember, they were in the age of innocence, the age of perfection. But uh, I like to think how terrifying it would have been for them to hear the scream of the animal, if he screamed, I have no idea. Maybe God uh, anesthetized the animal before he, of course, killed it. But all that's just foolish conjecture. He did kill an animal, get the skin, bring it back, and say, put this on. And they did, and he told them why. Because the blood symbolizes what Christ will do in the future. It takes a blood sacrifice, of course, in the sacrifice system, and in, which would come later. And in addition to that, uh, we know the blood represents the spiritual death of Christ. All right, Satan was also a major player in the slaying player in the slaying of Abel. Genesis chapter four. I'm going to read through verse eight. And she again bare his brother Abel. We're talking about Cain and Abel now. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstling of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain... And to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. There's a lot of supposition that is required here, and that's what it is, supposition. We do not have evidence that God said, okay, Cain, you do this, and okay, Abel, you do this. I want from you, Abel, uh, a a sacrifice of an animal. And I want from you uh, a sacrifice from an animal. I've got to have the blood sacrifice. But apparently that was the case in uh, again, supposition uh, that that took place because of the righteousness of God, which is not supposition. He is righteous. All right, so major Satan then was a major player in the slaying of Abel. Uh, now let's look at John chapter 8, verse 44. Talking to about Satan again. You are of your father the devil and the lust of your father... Ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. All right, there are false communicators who no doubt tried to dissuade Noah in building the ark. John, excuse me, John Gray Barnhouse uh, has said in his book entitled Genesis, and I'll quote, We must realize it had never rained upon the earth. Rain was one of the things uh, not seen as yet. 
Now we know there was a band of water around the earth. We can go to our doctrine of creation and you can see that. And we've added some things to it recently. But uh, uh, one day the band of water around the earth fell. And that's what caused the great flood. But what a fool Noah must have seemed to those who lived all around him when he warned of a change in nature. That was one of the greatest geological, one of the greatest in geological history. That is to say that suddenly we had this water fall upon planet Earth. And it did a lot of things. Many people have studied it scientifically and uh, noted that... uh, when the band of water was around the earth, it filtered radiation, and as a result, you can plot the life expectancy of man. And it, uh, you know, after the water fell, uh, we saw that man didn't live as long. And it plots very like a logarithm, uh, uh, going down, 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 down. So we lost. The very, very, very long life spans that existed when we had the radiation uh, shield around planet Earth. All right, so there were false communicators who rose up against Moses, going to another, if you will, bad guy or bad guys plural. Notice Exodus seventeen two, reading through verse six. There were false communicators who rose up against Moses. Exodus 17.2 again, starting there. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall water come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. All right, and then we had, of course, old Korah, and we've studied that before. But uh, we'll get on that next week. The Lord willing, the creek doesn't rise. But keep in mind that uh, you had the two events as far as the rock and the water are concerned. You have Mirabai 1, Mirabai 2. And then, uh, of course, at the second time, he was told just to speak to the rock, not to strike it again, but he was angry. And anger is sometimes a sin, sometimes not a sin. But in Moses' case, it was a sin. And he went there, and he gets so upset with his people that he was leading to the promised land that uh, he went ahead and struck the rock. And we know how important that rock was symbolically because we know that from the New Testament, when Paul himself tells us that that rock was representative of Christ and he is only supposed to be struck once. In other words, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ once and it is done. In other words, faith alone in Christ alone. And so if you are out there in computer land and you've not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ or you're listening to our podcast, uh, and you've not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I am to do the work of an evangelist. Secondary application in the verses that we've studied, uh, again, in Second Timothy. And so, of course, I've given various scriptures, several scriptures today, about how you get saved, if you will. That's a term, you know, uh, we use from time to time as Christians. And some people have said to me, saved from what? Because we just assume everybody knows, you know. Saved means saved from hell, damnation, terrible pain, never ending, can't get out. And that's exactly what it means to be saved from 
a terrible situation. You know, it's easy when you burn your finger, it sometimes stops or eventually does, but not so in hell. It'll just go on and on and on. So you can avoid that if you've not already done it. But you only to do it one time. Faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. As many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. For by grace are you saved through faith in that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But as the chronicler says, you know, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I'll hear from heaven and will heal their land. And that's what we need today. So you may be the one who needs to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can indeed seek His face. Because you can't seek His face if you're not a member of the family. And certainly our nation needs that. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven and will heal their land. Take heed. Seek Him so that we can have a land that is healed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer for our benediction. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to to worship. We've sang we've heard music, we've talked about giving, we've certainly given out the gospel, and we've also uh, learned that we are to seek your faith, the face. So help us to do just that so that we might indeed have a land that is taken close to your heart. Help us, Father. Help us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.